So the first thing that the country protected us from before bad milk and, and bad meat was bad bourbon, because there were people in, in this time frame called rectifiers who would take essentially vodka and they would add flavoring to it to make it seem and taste like whiskey. And those things would sometimes be harmless, but sometimes if the proof wasn't high enough, they would add things like acid to give it that burn, that finish that you feel in your chest. If it wasn't dark enough, they would put tobacco spit in it. Uh, if it wasn't dark enough, uh, there's a certain bug that if you crunched up its shell, it would uh, make like a red dye. And they would add that to it. So they could add whatever they wanted to the spirit and they could call it whiskey. And the producers of straight bourbon whiskey couldn't do anything about it. There wasn't any law to prevent them from challenging those rectifiers. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with me, as usual this morning, is my co-host, Lester Tate. Good morning, Lester. Good morning, Robin. How are you today? I'm doing fine. My left arm is a little sore because I had my second COVID vaccination shot yesterday. Uh, well, that's uh, that's really good news. I uh, I got my immunity the uh, old-fashioned way, uh, although uh, I only suffered for a couple hours. I got one of those monoclonal antibody infusions, which really, uh, really helped. If people get it and uh, are eligible for that, I would uh, highly recommend it. But I'm very excited this morning because we're going to be talking about one of my near favorite subjects, uh, 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 the elixir of the gods, uh, uh, Kentucky bourbon. Yes, uh, definitely one of our favorite subjects, although I, I want to let our view, our listeners know we're taping this at 10 o'clock in the morning, Wednesday morning, the 31st. So I, I don't have any bourbon in my coffee. I don't know about you, Lester, but I, 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 I don't have any. Maybe maybe we should have scheduled <laughs> it at five o'clock or, or at least declared it's as Jimmy Buffett says, it's five o'clock somewhere. Right. Well, we may have some tonight to celebrate the taping of and, and uh, of this and, and our great guest, Brian Hera. Um, and so let me uh, tell our listeners a little bit about Brian. Delighted to have him. Uh, Brian Hara is a Kentucky lawyer and author of Bourbon Justice, How Whiskey Law Shaped America. And we're going to talk to him about his book and about bourbon litigation, uh, the great American spirit, how it shaped our country's laws. Bourbon whiskey has made a surprising contribution to American legal history. Tracking the history of bourbon and bourbon law illuminates the development of the United States as a nation from conquering the wild frontier to rugged individualism to fostering the entrepreneurial spirit to solidifying itself as a nation of laws. Bourbon is responsible for the growth and maturation of many substantive areas of law, such as trademark, breach of contract, fraud, governmental regulation and taxation, and consumer protection. In Bourbon Justice, Brian Hara delves into the legal history behind one of America's most treasured spirits to uncover a past fraught with lawsuits whose outcome, surprisingly perhaps, 
help define a nation. Let me tell you a little bit about Brian. He is a partner in the law firm of Tackall Meek in Louisville, Kentucky. Tackall Meek. Brian primarily practices in the insurance, financial services, and bourbon industries and represents businesses and professionals in defense of employment claims and professional liability claims, fiduciary liability, disputes among owners, conflicts with competitors and vendors, insurance coverage and bad faith disputes, construction defects, and personal injury defense. Brian received his undergraduate degree from Alma College, a BA, magna cum laude, and Phi Beta Kappa in 1993, and his law school degree from the University of Kentucky College of Law, where he received his uh, Juris Doctor in 1996. His book, Bourbon Justice, How Whiskey Law Shaped America, is his first book, but it is based on his over 20 years of practicing law in Louisville, Kentucky. Brian's practice includes litigation of business, including bourbon trademark litigation, insurance, and real estate disputes. And after finding cases of significant bourbon historical value, Brian discovered that bourbon law tracks the growth of the United States from conquering the wild frontier to rugged individualism, to the entrepreneurial spirit, to establishing a nation of laws. American law developed along with the bourbon industry, both of which in turn track the evolution and growth of the United States. And you can learn more about Brian Hara at various websites. I want to tell you those. Tackall Meek, uh, that's his law firm. It's T-A-C-H-A-U-L-A-W.com. Or you can follow him at his bourbon blog, Sippin' Corn, which is S-I-P-P-N-C-O-R-N.com. You can also uh, find him at brianhara.com or bourbonjustice.com. And I think you can probably uh, find a link to buy his book at every one of those websites would be my guess. Uh, Brian, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you, Robin <laughs> and Lester. Um, I'm always a little embarrassed to hear about myself, but uh, I'm always glad to talk about bourbon, even in the morning. And uh, and most of these, when I do a CLE, a lot of times we'll do it uh, right at as the last session, and then we'll move into happy hour. But I, I enjoy talking bourbon in the morning as well. And, and thanks for having me. That, that sounds like a great idea. Um, I know you mentioned Bill Samuels, uh, master distiller of Maker's Mark several times in your book, who uh, when I was president of Atlanta Lawyers Club, I had Bill come and speak to our club. And we it's a dinner. It's a dinner meeting. And so we had a little bottle of Maker's Mark at everybody's place setting. Nice. Uh, and most people just opened it up and did it as a shot that night. We had a lot of fun <laughs> with Bill Samuels. Um, First thing I wanted to note is what a beautiful dedication of your book to your father. And it says, Dad, I wish that we could share another bourbon. I thought that was very touching. And so I assume your father has passed. He did. um, And it was it was one of those situations um, where it comes on suddenly. I had been working on the book and had made a great connection with my dad, uh, who still lives lived in Michigan. Uh, through bourbon. And whenever he would come down, we would visit one distillery or another. If I got a good bottle, I would save it until dad got here and we would try it. Or when I'd go up to Michigan, I'd I'd bring a bottle up. And then he was diagnosed with meso um, from a long career in the, uh, in the Navy initially in the sixties, and then, uh, then working in shops all his life. Um, so it uh, was relatively quick, but as painful as anything could be. 
and uh, the the book had was coming out right as we were in the last couple of months. Um, and so I was able to change the dedication. The way this works, you, you submit your manuscript about a year before it's published. So I had a different, uh, different dedication in it. Uh, but fortunately, I was able to change that. Very nice. And right. I, I take it he knew well that it was going to be published and uh, right. that yep. you were writing it. Good, good. Um, first, first question right out of the box. Why write the book? Why write Bourbon Justice? I mean, I can think of a lot of good reasons, but tell, tell our listeners what your thinking was. Well, it, it started small. It didn't start with the book. It started with a, with a tour of Woodford Reserve back probably in 2013. And I'd been there before and have been there since. But it just happened to be that I was, I was there at a tour one summer. And uh, the, the next week, just researching for something totally different on, on Westlaw, I came across a case from the 1800s and it was about bourbon and I'm a bourbon fan and a history fan. So as a lot of us do, when we get a, a false hit on a case that looks interesting, we read it anyways. And I could tell that it was talking about Woodford Reserve, a place I'd just been two days earlier, but it was talking about somebody named James Pepper, who wasn't a name in 2013 that I was familiar with. And it was talking about Colonel E.H. Taylor, which was a name I was familiar with. Uh, but they didn't say anything about those things um, at the tour. Um, and more than that, they didn't say anything about James Crow, who this case was telling me was the distiller. And I'd heard about James Crow. He's the guy who, the, the Scottish chemist who brought uh, basically science to bourbon distillation and the soured math, mash method. And they didn't say anything about him. And it was interesting to me that they hadn't done that. So I started looking for other bourbon cases, which was pretty easy to do with a word search. And I, I started seeing how many bourbon cases there were from the 1800s and then right after Prohibition. And, and that inspired me to start a blog. And after about a year of writing the blog or so, uh, the, the author who wrote my foreword, Fred Minnick, who has several bourbon books of his own, encouraged me to, to write a book on this because there were already a dozen, two dozen, three dozen bourbon books, but none of them that approached it from this angle and none of them that used what you can find in a lawsuit uh, that you can't find anywhere else because it was all either lost or destroyed during prohibition but none, none of those books use this kind of source. So that's, that's what really got me going on it is, is initially an interest and then encourage, encouragement from Fred Minnick and others. So uh, I, I think I'm correct on this. Um, I, I, may be, uh, I may be a poor lawyer and a poor bourbon aficionado, but bourbon actually has a statutory definition, I believe, that uh, uh, that makes it uh, a bit unique uh, from from other drinks. Is that right? That's exactly right. It it has more definitions, more hurdles, more hoops to jump through than any other spirit. Uh, other spirits are also defined, but uh, bourbon has the most regulation, uh, and it's all in in the federal regulations. It governs the the mash bill. It's got to be fifty one percent corn. And as a quick aside, that's how I got the name Sippin' Corn. There was a 
old uh, documentary on and an old timer was being interviewed and he was asked how he likes his corn and he said he prefers to sip his corn. <laughs> so back in that was back in the 2013 time frame. And I thought, well, that's a great name for a blog, Sipping Corn. Uh, but it, re it, it requires certain mash bill, uh, certain proof for distillation and for barreling uh, and a certain proof for bottling. Um, and there's um, there's some age requirements and maybe we'll get into that a little bit more, but a lot of people don't quite understand how old something has to be to be considered bourbon. And that's always a, a fun fact that I like to talk about. Uh, well, um, you, you thoroughly researched this book. I noticed that you had 18 pages of notes and 12 pages of table of authority. So if there's a case out there involving bourbon, I feel like you, you covered it in as a, I'm, I'm, I'm like you. I love bourbon, love history, love law. So I really ate this up. I thought it was great. But some of the things you we're going to talk about it a little more uh, in depth, but just some of the things that I noted uh, that you started the book out with is all the labels that people put on bourbon. And by that, I mean, what adjectives, I guess, straight, old, pure, Kentucky proof small batch, single barrel craft, handmade and finishing. Um, and then I, I noted a, a statement in there that makes sense. It says all bourbon is whiskey, but not, not all whiskey is bourbon. That's right. And, and a lot of people will hear that on the tours. That's a, it's a line that a lot of the tour guides give just to set the stage for what this is, because scotch is a whiskey. Canadian rye is a whiskey. Japanese whiskey is, is a whiskey, but they are all different types of whiskey. And so uh, whiskey is, as a general definition, is a spirit distilled from grain. So as long as you're starting with a grain, whether it's corn for bourbon or rye, uh, uh, malted barley for scotch, or some of the craft producers are using quinoa and oats, uh, that can be a whiskey. Um, it's not really the best whiskey, but it can be a whiskey as long as you're starting with a grain. And then to be bourbon, it's got to be made in the United States and has to follow this long laundry list of other rules. But the, the labels that really interested me too, some of them are totally meaningless. They're just marketing, uh, marketing words like craft. I mean, craft can hardly mean anything anymore uh, when a company like Jim Beam puts it on a label. Uh, Jim Beam has one of the largest bourbon factories. Now, I almost don't call it a distillery. Uh, compared to anyone else, and they put craft on some of their labels. Uh, Maker's Mark used the word handmade, and they got sued in Florida and California for using handmade. Fortunately, they won those, those cases, um, but that really doesn't mean a, a whole lot either because bourbon isn't so much handmade anymore. There are certainly steps that, uh, that use hands, but a lot of it is automated and, and mechanized. So reading the label can be really important to know what you are getting, but it can also be misleading to some extent. So one of the one of those terms that Robin mentioned is straight, straight, straight bourbon whiskey, which is an age requirement, I believe. Is it? I think it's seven years. Is that is that right? Well, to be uh, to be bourbon, let's maybe even back up uh, a few squares. Uh, to be bourbon, there is no actual age requirement. A lot of people will think it's two or four right. or seven years, but as long as it is in a new charred oak container, and the, the regs use the word container, not barrel, but everyone uses a, a barrel, but you could put 
uh, whiskey distillate, the clear distillate into a new charred oak bucket, even momentarily, and you'll have bourbon. So there, there is no particular month or year requirement to become bourbon. As long as it is rested even momentarily in a new charred oak container, you'll have bourbon. Um, to, be, uh, to be straight bourbon, you've got to be at least two years old. And if you see a bottle that doesn't have an age statement on it anywhere, you're guaranteed that it's at least four years old. So the, the way the regs are worded, if you're, four, if you're under four years old, you have to put the age of the spirit uh, on, the, on the label. If you're over four years, it's optional. So, so talk to me just a little bit about uh, how that has affected entry into the industry by, by new, new distillers, because a lot of these distillers are, are very, very old, you know, go back uh, 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 decades. Uh, if, if not, if not a century, you know, in some cases and, uh, you know, so for, for example, with wine, if you, uh, get your new place out in the, uh, out in the California Valley or, or in Oregon, you know, you can, you can bring in your vintage the next year, but with bourbon, you have to, uh, you you have certain constraints, uh, you know, and I, I, I know that's not an absolute constraint as we talked about, but how has that affected entry of new, uh, bourbon entrepreneurs, if you will, into the into the industry over the years. It requires a boatload of money. I mean, untold amounts of money is is what it does, and that's because if you're starting a distillery and you're you're starting up your still and you're putting your distillate into a barrel, one, it's not going to be particularly good after six months or or a year. And maybe you and your distiller need to work out some kinks in the distillation process. So it might not be the best distillate in the first place after your first few trial runs. But even after you perfect your distillation techniques, you're going to want to age it sufficiently long so that it's a decent product when you put it out. There are some uh, new distilleries that have opened up and that have released six month and one year old bourbon. And it's, it's really no good. And they charge $50 for it because they have to, and there's a buzz about it, but it's really something that you've got to hide in a really sweet cocktail. It's not something for, for drinking neat. So the, the, ent- the people entering the market who have the financing what they do is they try to get by by selling vodka or rum, something that doesn't need to be aged, but they can run the same mash bill and produce something, get it out the door, make a little bit of money. Others, others of them don't even do that. They just hold their breath until they've got four-year-old bourbon, and then they can sell it either as, as bottled and bond or at least a non-age stated uh, or in a lot of cases, a craft distiller will put the age on it just to show that it's their their own bourbon and they've distilled it there and they've aged it there. The other thing that they can do is that's also expensive is they can try to buy bulk bourbon on the open market. And there are a few distilleries that will sell bourbon by bulk. And so some of these distilleries will buy that, bottle it as their own. So a distillery who opens last year suddenly has a 12-year-old bourbon. Um, and then they try to, they, they just try to make enough money on that to stay afloat until they can start selling their own bourbon. It's a really expensive proposition to open up your own distillery. Ron, you mentioned uh, bottled in bond. 
which is a statute, um, and I have that it was passed in 1897, That's right. so it's pretty old. Um, and so there were a couple of statutes or, or acts that I want to talk to you about. Bottled in Bond, 1897 is one of them. And the Taft decision or the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? And, and I guess on Bottled in Bond, that seems to be making a reemergence in, in uh, getting younger drinkers you know, young people who want to drink bourbon, it seems to be kind of the trendy thing. It's like to grab a bottle of bottled in bond. We have a, a old Fourth Ward distillery here in Atlanta, and they, that's one of their hallmarks is bottled in bond, as if that makes it better. So can, can you talk to us a little bit about what that is and what it means? Absolutely. And it's, it's one of my favorite all-time stories of, of bourbon, bottled in bond is. And uh, to start with your last point first, I, I think you're right. It is making a resurgence. It's really being led by Kevin Hill, I think, on the, on the big distiller side. They have the most bottled and bond bourbons of, of anyone else. But uh, you're also seeing, as you mentioned, a lot of the new distilleries are, are offering bottled and bond bourbon. What that means is that it adds additional requirements to the already long laundry list of requirements for bourbon. So in addition to everything else that you need to be bourbon, it has to be at least four years old. It has to come from just one distillery during one distilling season. And there's two distilling seasons. It's, it's fall and spring and made by one distiller. So you've got to have this continuity of, of the operations and the other thing that this does, maybe only incidentally, is it means that you can't blend in other bourbon to, to fix what you have. So bottling something in bond as a bottled in bond bourbon shows a lot of confidence in your product because it can only come from that one distillation season. So you can't start with a four-year-old bourbon and blend in a little bit of 12-year-old bourbon to give it more of an oaky back, uh, backbone. You can't blend in another bourbon that maybe was uh, a little sweeter to, to balance some maybe pepper uh, tones that might be in the bourbon. You're stuck with what you have. And so it's a, it's a sign of confidence, I think, when a distiller releases the bottle and bond bourbon. But my favorite story of, of bottle and bond is that it's the country's first consumer protection law. So again, this is 1897. This is a time frame when milk was adulterated. Uh, they, they would thin milk down with water and sometimes pond water to make it go further. But of course, when milk is that thin, no one's going to buy it. So you had to add chalk or other substance, substances to thicken it up. And you added formaldehyde to make it last longer. I mean, milk was bad stuff in the 1890s. And we've all read or remember hearing about the jungle and, and meat contamination and meat packing plants and how bad meat was. And consumers weren't protected from either of those things. So the first thing that the country protected us from before bad milk and, and bad meat was bad bourbon. Because there were people in, in this time frame called rectifiers who would take essentially vodka, a clear flavorless distillate, and they would add flavoring to it to make it seem and taste like whiskey. And those things would sometimes be harmless, like caramel coloring and, and regular uh, natural additives to, for flavoring. But sometimes if the proof wasn't high enough, they would add things like acid to give it that burn, that, that, that finish that you feel in your chest. If it wasn't dark enough, they would put tobacco spit in it. Uh, if it wasn't dark enough, they would crunch up 
uh, there's a certain bug that if you crunched up its shell, it would uh, make like a red dye. And they would add that to it. So they could add whatever they wanted to this, this spirit, and they could call it whiskey. And the producers of straight bourbon whiskey couldn't do anything about it. There wasn't any law to prevent them from challenging those rectifiers. So a guy named Colonel E.H. Taylor from Frankfort, Kentucky, led the charge, a nationwide charge, to uh, pass the Bottled and Bond Act, which gave those restrictions on, on what could be straight bourbon whiskey, bottled and bond whiskey, to try to put the rectifiers out of business. So maybe he didn't really have a consumer protection um, uh, purpose in what he was doing because he wanted to beat the rectifiers in the market, but it ended up being our first consumer protection law. Um, and it didn't really do enough because the rectifiers still stayed in business. So that's why in 1906, we finally had the Pure Food and Drug Act which, which specifically addressed some of the, the worst whiskey producers. There was a guy named Walter Duffy who made all sorts of false medicinal claims about his Duffy's pure malt whiskey and all the great things that it could do for you. Um, and and uh, that was mentioned by name in the Pure Food and Drug Act. Um, but the rectifiers still hung on and they were still producing their fake whiskey and so that required three years later, the Taft decision. So President Taft um, came in and he had to basically mediate the dispute among the rectifiers and the producers of straight bourbon whiskey. And they wanted him to define what it meant to be whiskey. And so through the Taft decision, he basically said that if you produce imitation whiskey, call it that. If you produce straight bourbon whiskey, call it that. The consumer is entitled to know what he's getting, and he should be able to look at the bottle and determine what he's getting. So it, it, it at least stopped the rectifiers from putting straight bourbon whiskey on their labels, which they had been able to do before that. And that is still the law today, I take it. That's right. It's, it's still the law today. It's been changed around the edges uh, through the regulations. And now uh, with our regulations, it's a lot clearer on what can be called straight bourbon whiskey. And we have a whole regulatory body that is called the TTB that governs uh, label approvals and uh, has a long, long regulation on what you can and can't put on labels. So there's certainly more bureaucracy. There's certainly more laws now, but it all got its start through those, uh, through those three things. So let's talk about for a minute about Kentucky bourbon. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on with uh, with with uh, two Kentuckians today. You and you and Robin, uh, both. Uh, but you know, there's an old wives' tale that old bourbon has to come from Kentucky, which is, I think, pretty clearly uh, false to anybody with a rudimentary knowledge of that. But uh, what does Kentucky bourbon mean? Is there a legal significance? And also, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, why Kentucky. Uh, is viewed as uh, a, a, as Grand Central Station for for bourbon. Yeah, I, I love this question, and it really all ha comes down to, I think, just location and, and luck as far as why Kentucky is the bourbon central of of the country. Um, when Kentucky was um, the far western frontier, a lot of people from the east would come here to escape taxation and regulation in the long arm of the law. And a lot of the distillers in Pennsylvania and Maryland distilled rye. Rye grew a lot better in, in the Northeast. 
And when they made it to Kentucky, they found that corn grew remarkably well. They found that we had fantastic water. They found that we had a climate that cooperated with the aging process for whiskey. So they started using the grain that was most abundant, and that was corn. And so for a while, it did mean, and there are some cases that do refer to bourbon as, uh, as, a, as a Kentucky product. Um, so that I think that's where the legend comes from, that it had to be made in Kentucky. It's no longer true. Uh, bourbon can be made anywhere in the United States. It can, you can have Hawaiian and Alaskan bourbon if you want, but it's not going to be any good. That, and that goes back to why Kentucky was so lucky. Uh, the, the temperature variations, and I know a lot of states, and I, I know you all in, in Georgia have some of these memes too about uh, you, you, you wake up and it's winter and by, um, by lunch it's summer. We have similar temperature variations here. And we have, we have hot, humid summers, which is when the bourbon will expand into the barrel because of the heat. And by going into the barrel, that's where it picks up all of its coloring. When whiskey goes into a barrel, it's, it's crystal clear. All 100% of its coloring comes from the barrel. And then it also picks up through, through chemical reactions, sugars that are in the charred staves of the barrel. So uh, when it cools down then, the whiskey comes back into the barrel and it brings with it that color and it brings with it the sweetness and the oakiness and the pepper that you get from, from, the, uh, from the bourbon barrel. Um, and we just got lucky. Um, we, we found through just trial and error that this was the best place to make bourbon. Uh, Tennessee has a similar uh, environment. It has, it, where it's on a similar limestone shelf. So you've get good pure water in both states. And there's also a distillery right across the Ohio River in Indiana that makes a, an absolute ton of rye and bourbon. It's called MGP. And they, they make a lot and they're, they're right on the Ohio River. So they have the same limestone shelf. They have the same condition that we do. So that's why it's all centralized here. Um, just, a, just a fortunate accident of nature that we're the best for it. So a few years ago, I went to uh, Ireland to see my alma mater, Georgia Tech, play Boston College. I'm in a bar in Kilkenny, Ireland, and on the blackboard there, they have written up, Jack Daniels is basically the same thing as bourbon. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I thought it a bit defamatory. And uh, not that I don't like Jack Daniels, but, uh, and I, I wondered what the Irish would say if, uh, you know, if we, uh, likened uh, uh, something to Irish whiskey that actually was not. But a lot of people think that, you know, that Jack Daniels, you know, if you, you know, if you go to a bar, you know, an open bar or whatever, you know, what kind of bourbon do you have? Jack, well, you've got Jack Daniels. Uh, could, you, could, could you tell us why Jack Daniels, uh, great product that it is and one I enjoy is not bourbon? Well, it, it's a great question because it qualifies as bourbon. It has a mash bill that is more than 50 percent corn. Uh, it doesn't have any sort of flavoring added to it, uh, artificial flavoring or anything like that. So it should, you would think, qualify as bourbon. But what Jack Daniels does and what Tennessee has tried really hard to protect and promote is it uses something called the Lincoln County process. And that means that before the whiskey is entered into the barrel, 
it is filtered through a thick layer of charred, I, I believe it's maple. Um, and it, it acts as a filter to take out some maybe of the harsher tones from the distillate. And that is what makes it Tennessee whiskey. And that to the purist in the bourbon world is adding a flavor because one of the regulations for bourbon is that you can't add any flavoring. You have to have just the distillate. It has to be made from the right percentages of the right, of, of the right grains. And it has to be in a new charred oak container. You can't add caramel coloring. You can't add any other flavoring. You can't put it into a, a wine barrel for the last three months and still call it straight bourbon whiskey. You can't put anything else into it. And so the bourbon purist would say that Tennessee whiskey violates that rule through the Lincoln County process. There was a case that you um, talk about involving Jack Daniels and Ezra Brooks. Uh, and that, I guess, is a truth in labeling case. I want to talk a little bit about this bourbon litigation that was so interesting. Um, but the case was Jack Daniel Distillery, Inc., the Hoffman Distilling Company, 1957. And I think Jack Daniels sued Hoffman that made Ezra Brooks uh, saying that they tried to make their black label look just like Jack Daniels and it confused consumers. That's right. It's, it's one of my favorite cases. And as all of your listeners probably know uh, a little bit about being home cooked or maybe getting mm -hmm. some home cooking when the tables are turned, I think there's a little bit of that going on here because Jack Daniels as a Tennessee whiskey came to Kentucky to sue the owners of Ezra Brooks. And so we had Kentucky judges ruling on this and Ezra Brooks, the court recognized was undoubtedly trying to mimic Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels had a, had a square bottle. It was distinctive at the time. No one else had a square bottle. And lo and behold, Ezra Brooks had the square bottle. It had a similar uh, label at the bottom and it had a similar neck label. It showed, it showed an old time distillery on the label. It used kitschy phrases like pure sipping whiskey and and 90 proof for character and, and sort of things like that that made it look so close to, to Jack Daniels that Jack Daniels sued for infringement and, uh, and for market confusion and tried to get Ezra Brooks uh, off the shelves. But the distinctive factor here is that Ezra Brooks still said straight bourbon whiskey on the label. And Jack Daniels had on its label, Tennessee whiskey. And so the court ended up ruling that a consumer at the very least has to look at the label enough to see that one is Tennessee whiskey and that the other is straight bourbon whiskey. One's from Kentucky, one's from Tennessee. And that was distinguishing enough, even though they, you, you could tell that Ezra Brooks was trying to, to look like Jack Daniels, even though they had print ads where it would show a hand reaching for an Ezra Brooks bottle right next to a Jack Daniels bottle. Even though it was trying to use, use the Jack Daniels good name, it was different enough because it said Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey and it was a different type of whiskey than Tennessee whiskey. On page 137 of your book, you have a chart that shows how similar their labels were. They're, they're basically the same, but a couple of words changed. For example, Jack Daniels said 90 proof by choice. Ezra Brooks said 90 proof for character. Right. Uh, Jack said rare old sipping whiskey and Ezra said real sipping whiskey. 
<laughs> so That's they're, right. They're very, very similar. Um, the last thing that they were advertised, Jack said, there isn't quite enough to go around. And Ezra said, there just ain't enough to go around. That's right. They, they mimicked it at every turn. And the kicker for me that, I, that puzzles me a little bit on the ruling is that all of those things were true for Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels was a very popular brand coming out of World War II. And it was still a popular brand through the 50s and 60s and, and is now. It's an incredibly popular brand. Ezra Brooks was brand new. They, they didn't have their own distillery. They were sourcing bourbon on the open market. So this picture of the old time distillery on the, on the label just didn't exist. The claim that there ain't enough to go around wasn't true. There wasn't the demand for Ezra Brooks. It was a brand new whiskey. There wasn't any demand yet. So things like that really trouble me with that case. But the, again, the court held you should at least read, consumers should at least read the label to see one's Tennessee and one's Kentucky, and that's good enough. Which then led to another interesting case, Brown Foreman Corp v. Barton, Inc., about the Woodford Reserve. You mentioned Woodford Reserve, and I, I think Lester and I, I know I've been to Woodford Reserve. Lester probably has, too. I think um, we went together, Robin. Oh, you okay. might not remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, think, Southern Conference of Bar Presidents, about 20, 2012 or so. And, okay. Uh, Okay, I've been a couple of times. Then. Um, but anyway, Brown Foreman Corp v. Barton Inc. about the Woodford Reserve uh, label and the distinction of distilled for versus distilled by. Right. Can you tell so us you, a little bit about that case. Yes. Yeah, so courts are putting a lot of pressure on consumers to read the fine print sometimes. This, this was a case uh, that Brown Foreman, which owns the Woodford Reserve uh, distillery and brand, filed against Barton because when Woodford was launched in the mid-90s, it, it was new. It was, um, it was a new thing for bourbon. It was helping to bring bourbon back into a more exclusive, high-end type of spirit because through the 70s and 80s, bourbon sort of got the brown bag uh, in a gutter sort of reputation. And Maker's Mark did a great job of starting to turn that around. And then Woodford is really the brand that turned it around when it released its, its high-end Woodford Reserve. Now, what they did is they, they bought a distillery in Woodford County, Kentucky, that incidentally they had owned decades earlier. And so they, they rebought it. They fixed it up. They started distilling there, but of course you can't, just like the craft distillers are finding out, you can't distill something and release it a month later. So what Brown Foreman did is that it distilled the Woodford Reserve whiskey, the whiskey that would be Woodford Reserve at its distillery in Louisville. And then it would ship it after it was nearly done aging, it would ship it to the warehouses at the Woodford Reserve property and the word they used is matured. They would mature these barrels of Brown Foreman bourbon at the Woodford Reserve property and then, and then released. And that way they could say that it was, is, was they didn't use the word distilled, but they said matured in the heart of the bluegrass region at, at Woodford Reserve. The brand was so popular that just like Jack Daniels, it created some incentive for other brands to try to mimic it. And that's what Barton did. They uh, weren't, they didn't have any premium brands of their own. 
And so overnight, they named their still that had been at the distillery for, for decades. I'm not even sure how long they named their still and they called it the Ridgewood still. Um, they actually, the legendary Ridgewood still, and they released this new brand that they called Ridgewood reserve. And for those of your listeners who've seen Woodford reserve, it's kind of in a flask shaped bottle and lo and behold, the Ridge, the Ridgewood reserve was in a flask shaped bottle with a wooden closure at the top and a real cork and a rectangular label at the bottom. And it looked a lot like Woodford Reserve. And in the depositions, which again is a great a great part of the, the research that's available when you write a book from this perspective, the marketers admitted that they were going for the Woodford feel. They acknowledged that they were going for this look and for this feel. And I think in a, in a remarkable ruling, the court ordered Barton to take Ridgewood Reserve off the shelves, off the retail shelves, um, which uh, is goes a lot further than, than a lot of courts have gone in these trademark cases. But I think it was warranted here uh, because it was it was really trying to mimic and confuse the the customers. And they changed their name from Ridgewood to Ridgemont. And then a few years later, they took off Ridgemont entirely and used the, the name 1792, which is the state or the year that Kentucky joined the union. Um, so now it's, if you see 1792 from Barton, that's what used to be Ridgewood Reserve. So, so there are a lot of, uh, some of the cases you talk about are, are, are puffery cases or mere, mere puffing as my contract professor uh, used to call it. Uh, where somebody's trying to sell their product and they're 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 puffing it up and they're they're making it sound good, uh, it seems to me there's a there's a couple of things you know puffery you've talked about a little bit about handmade and uh, things like that, but there are also a number of bourbons on the market now that I'm sort of kind of familiar with that have a little uh, 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 niche that they're trying to say makes it better. Uh, Widow Jane, you know, bottled in New York, comes from some spring in New York. Uh, we also have, uh, I think there's one that's supposedly aged at sea, uh, as, right. as if the, you know, if the barrel's floating on the, <laughs> uh, on one of the seven seas, you know, the flavor is going to be different. Uh, how much of these actually, uh, add flavor, uh, you know, add substance to something that's important to a bourbon drinker, as opposed to is just a gimmick or puffery, uh, as the law calls it. There's probably a glimmer of truth in both of those because the Widow Jane, for example, if it's if you're using other New York water, there might be minerals uh, in, in the water, a high mineral content. And if you put that into your bourbon, it's going to give it a, uh, a rusty flavor. And that's why water is so important. And that's why Kentucky is so lucky to be on the limestone shelf because the limestone filters out all of those minerals and you get a pure water that doesn't affect the, the taste except positively. So you, your water source can be important. I don't know if Widow Jane only uses that spring water or if they do use other water as well to cut the whiskey. Um, but there's a, a little nugget of, of truth there that you do have to use good water. And then as the, uh, the ocean aging one is, is, I like to say it's pure marketing, uh, and that's from Jefferson's here in Louisville. But there is something about agitating the, the whiskey while it's in the barrel. 
and giving it an opportunity to interact more with the barrel staves. Because if a, if a barrel is just sitting stationary in a warehouse, it has to rely on the changes in temperature to expand into the staves and then come back out of the staves. So there are a lot of uh, gimmicks. And, I, and I, the analogy I use is you can put a steak in a microwave and cook it faster than you can on a charcoal grill, but it's not going to be as good at the end. And so I think the traditional way of keeping the barrel stationary and giving it enough years to go in and out of the staves is probably better, but that doesn't stop people from trying these uh, speed up techniques for the aging. So there are some craft distillers that will play a heavy uh, uh, bass music in their warehouse. It's you know the kind that's loud enough that you can feel it in your chest, and that reverberates through the barrels, and that agitates the the whiskey in the barrels and gets more interaction with the wood. And when you're on a boat in the ocean, the the waves will create that same sort of effect. There are other craft distillers that will put um, charred oak chips into the barrel to try to get more interaction with charred wood as it ages to try to speed that process up. And there are all sorts of theories to accelerate that aging process. And uh, personally, I, I like to stick with, and maybe this means I'm a traditionalist, but I, I like to stick with the old method. I think that ends up making the best steak. The old ways are the old ways are the best ways. Yeah, oftentimes um, they are, that's right. So, is there you know as you, and you talked about how bourbon has gone from being a uh, you know a brown bag uh, brown bag walk out of the liquor store, sit on the curb and drink it uh, viewed that way as opposed to a, a really high end uh, type endeavor. Uh, for uh, well, for folks like me and Robin, who you know, who enjoy uh, sort of trying to be connoisseurs uh, uh, about it, and you've talked, we've talked about the the barriers to entry a little bit. Is there is there a bourbon shortage as its popularity has picked up? Are, are we are we gonna uh, wake up one day and and uh, see uh, prices uh, skyrocketing on bourbon like it did on gas during the during the energy shortage? I, I, that's that's a great question, and the the trouble with predicting what market demand will be as a distiller is something I, I hope to never have to tackle, because again, this is something that is going to take four years to to be decent, to be something that you want to sell, and you don't know what that demand is going to be. And the bourbon distillers certainly didn't protect the, uh, predict the sort of growth that they've experienced, but within the last I'd say six years, the main distillers, the big distillers with the big distilleries really have been filling up their warehouses and they've been building new warehouses left and right and they are filling those warehouses. So even if the demand and popularity of bourbon continues to increase, which which I think it will, I, I kept thinking it was a bubble that was going to pop and it, it just hasn't. And it's even grown now internationally I think we'll have enough. Um, the price will go up though, because of the market demand for more premium bottles. And that's, that's really where you've seen it. Uh, limited releases have gone through the roof, both on retail pricing and buying in what is called the secondary market, which is really an illegal black market, but it's 
There, there are sites where you can buy and trade vintage whiskey or something that you are lucky enough to find on a store shelf that's allocated and no one else can get. Um, so I think the prices will continue to go up. And I'm always one who looks for the diamond in the rough or the price performer. And, and I think I know what some of those are. And I, I tend to stick with those. Is there, is there some kind of, uh, uh, are, are there any, I'll say, I know in the oil gas industry, there's, uh, there's certain leases and, and conventions that relate to that. And it seems to me that with bourbon, where you've got your, you know, you're placing, uh, you're placing all your stock in, in one or two barrels there, or maybe one or two uh, thousand barrels, but are there special uh, conventions for ensuring that, uh, that, uh, that are unique to the bourbon industry because of the aging requirements. And uh, also, you know, are there, is there a trade, is there a market in futures, you know, sort of bourbon futures where you can, you know, pay a certain amount now and hope that your value goes up uh, later on down the road. Yeah, there, there's all, all of those, all of the above and probably more that I don't even know about. Some craft distillers will sell you a, uh, however many barrels of bourbon you want to buy and they have a guaranteed buyback in some number of years. Um, and sometimes they can pick those number of years or sometimes it's capped at four. And they basically use you as, as non-traditional financing and you get a higher than market rate of return for you taking the, the risk on those barrels. Um, there's also something called a warehouse receipt and that's something that existed back in the 1800s and it's still used now um, where you can own barrels of bourbon that are aging at a federally licensed warehouse. And then you, as it, when, when those are matured, you can take those to a bottler. You can't, you can't possess them yourself if you're, not, if you're not also federally licensed, but you can have them moved from one bonded pre premises to another and you can go to a, a bottler, create your own label, and you can have a bourbon brand. Uh, so you've got all those sorts of ways to finance in addition to standard uh, bank financing. Um, and then there's, the, the, from the insurance perspective, it gets really complicated because there's so much value sitting in a bourbon warehouse. And it's uh, potentially a, a risky place. We've had uh, a major fire at Heaven Hill in the mid-90s. Uh, we've had uh, other fires at Wild Turkey and other distilleries where multiple warehouses are destroyed. And big warehouses essentially need to go to the Lloyd's market for reinsurance. And it's, uh, it's, it's an expensive proposition, but there's a lot of money in it as well. It looked like the Buffalo Trace distillery was flooded and it, when y'all had a lot of rain about mm -hmm. a month, month ago too. Buffalo Trace is right on the Kentucky River. It's been flooded probably uncountable times uh, since it was first built by Colonel Taylor in 1860 or so. Uh, and they, when they see that, that the water is coming, they take steps to move things upstairs, get the grain out of the way, and they just let it flood and yeah. rinse it out and start all over again. I, I wondered if they had lost a lot of bourbon during that flooding, but I guess they, they well, saw it coming. They, they see it coming and the, the, it's the distillery itself that's right on the river and is kind of even low on the bank on the river, surprisingly low. The warehouses are on a little bit higher ground, so those don't tend to be 
impacted by the water as much as the still room and the grain room and those sorts of operations. Ask you about a question that I have. Your book covers sourced bourbon and truth in labeling, that sort of thing. You mentioned earlier a mash bill, which I I believe is the recipe for the bourbon. Is that fair? That's right. And so the mash bill, uh, the word mash is used because the grain is has to be ground and then combined together uh, with water, and it's a mashy substance. So that's the mash bill. You, you, on page 140 of your book, you talk a little bit about the Woodford Reserve mash bill and say that it is the exact same mash bill as Old Forester uh, and that the master distiller um, of Woodford Reserve acknowledges this. So my question is, if you have two bourbons that have the exact same mash bill, what's the difference? Should I just buy the cheaper bourbon because it's going to taste the same? That's a great question. And a lot of distilleries will use the exact same mash bill for multiple brands. Some of them will be aged a little bit longer than others. So maybe there's a difference, but Buffalo Trace, for example, has three mash bills. The mash bill that they use for their standard uh, namesake brand, Buffalo Trace, is the same mash bill that's used for Eagle Rare, which is a little bit more expensive and that is used for their Colonel E.H. Taylor brand, which is a little more expensive than Eagle Rare. And each of those have a slight step up in age, so there's going to be some differences, but it's the exact same recipe that they use. A distillery like Four Roses takes a different approach. They have 10 recipes. So they they have two different mash bills, and then they combine those with five different yeasts. Uh, so yeast is another important uh, aspect of, of bourbon distillation because it adds a lot of uh, flavor to your to your whiskey distillate. And what Four Roses does is it, uh, on some of their bourbons, it will combine different percentages of those different whiskeys to create something that no one else can do. So they're really the, the best distillery out there that can take different recipes and combine them together. But to your point on, on Brown Foreman, and Woodford Reserve, um, one of the difference between their Old Forester brand and Woodford Reserve is going to be that for some amount of time, it's matured at the at the Woodford Reserve distillery. So maybe that can be a little bit different. The other thing that Woodford Reserve does is they will blend in some of the bourbon that they've distilled on site at Woodford Reserve, and they use pot stills at Woodford Reserve, which gives a a, a vastly different flavor than a more commercial, they call it a column still, it's a, or a continuous still. A pot still is the sort of the old fashioned way to do it. Um, And it's harder and you got to clean it after each distillation run and it creates a different flavor. So Woodford Reserve is going to taste different than Old Forester, for example. So uh, one of the things you talk about, uh, uh, I think also is prohibition. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, law- lawyers always remember the, the, the liquor amendments, 18 and 21 for uh, what, what is, is and has been drinking ages over the years. How did the bourbon industry uh, survive uh, prohibition and, uh, uh, you know, what, what, what happened during that period and what particularly happened with the law? 
Well, the, the little guy was devastated. Uh, before Prohibition, there were hundreds and hundreds of distilleries throughout Kentucky, and, uh, and Prohibition absolutely killed it. The only ones who survived Prohibition were the ones who got a medicinal license from the federal government, and they went around and bought the stocks of all the other distilleries, and they would sell it as medicinal whiskey through Prohibition. And that's how that's really what created the huge distilling companies that came out after Prohibition. Um, and one family in particular, the, the Wathen family, which was a, a big name in Kentucky distilling at the time, had the foresight to see this writing on the wall. And they created a, a company called the American Medicinal Spirits Company. And they were one of these companies that survived because they, they consolidated other people's stock and sold it as medicinal whiskey. And they were able to survive on the other side. I, no I noticed that if you got a doctor's prescription, you could have a pint every 10 days. That's right. So it, it, could, <laughs> it was back to Walter Duffy and it could cure uh, a cough. If you had a sore back, if you, you know, no matter what your ailment was, you could probably get your doctor to prescribe a pint of whiskey for you. That's interesting because I have, I have two artificial hips, but when I was going through really a lot of pain with both hips, uh, my, my family would say mom needs a hip juice, which was medicinal for my hips. And it meant, right. it meant bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> we still, we still call it hip juice, even though my hips are fine now, but <laughs> no, that's perfect. Yeah. There are some medicinal qualities. I will, there are. <laughs> absolutely. And, and Lester, one other thing that prohibition did that I found interesting is because it was illegal to distill now, um, Kentucky had a case that preceded MAP v. Ohio. And so you were able to get into uh, prohibition agents walking through the Kentucky countryside looking for renegade stills. And if they didn't have a warrant to search your property, there's a Kentucky case that provided the uh, rights just like MAP v. Ohio. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, one of the one of the uh, bourbons that sort of become legendary even has spun off into uh, 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 a life brand style is Pappy Van Winkle. You know, and uh, you know if you talk to talk to bourbon aficionados, I've I've never had any, uh, but it's very very hard to find, and uh, it is uh, you know reputed as being the you know the one of uh, the best bourbons. And so what, what is it uh, about uh, the, the, the Pappy story that, uh, that, that makes it, or maybe doesn't make it to uh, one of the best bourbons? Well, it's, it's got a great story to it. And it's such low quantities that it creates a, a mystique about it. Uh, because just as, as you've heard, a lot of people will say who've, who've never had it, that it's, it's the ultimate bourbon out there. It's the best bourbon you could ever get. And a lot of people believe that. And so a lot of people clamor for it and that makes the demand even higher. Um, it's, a, it's a weeded bourbon. So um, I, I remember you saying that's, that tends to be a type of bourbon that you like. So it's, Correct. it's, a, it's not a punch you in the face robust bourbon. Uh, it's got that, it's sweeter because of the wheat. Um, 
And it was started by, a, there, there's a picture of Pappy Van Winkle on some of the uh, older aged uh, Pappy Van Winkle bourbons. And he was a real guy and he had a great story. He was involved as a uh, bourbon salesman. He ended up buying a distillery in Louisville called the Stetzel Weller Distillery. And they made a lot of this weeded bourbon. And it wasn't that it was particularly popular back in the day, um, but with the resurgence of bourbon, there were some old stocks of this weeded bourbon uh, after the Stitzelwell distillery, distillery closed that his, uh, that Pappy Van Winkle's heirs got a hold of and relabeled under the old family brand. And it was, the timing was perfect. It couldn't have been better. It was this fantastic aged whiskey. There wasn't a lot of uh, extra aged whiskey out at the time. And the bourbon was absolutely phenomenal uh, from, the, from the Stitzel Weller distillery. And uh, it, it got all sorts of great press and one thing led to another and, and you just can't, and no one can find it anymore. Um, it's released once a year, it's, it's allocated. So there are, at least here, there are lines of folks who will uh, be at the liquor store. Sometimes they run a raffle uh, to see who can buy the Pappy Van Winkle. And I suspect that a lot of people who buy it uh, immediately turn around and try to sell it on the secondary market because you can buy it for $90 and sell it for $800 or $1,500, depending where you are. So a couple, a couple, of, uh, couple of other things that, uh, that, that, that I want to ask you about uh, that, that, that have to do sort of with bourbon uh, taste. Uh, you know, you talked about wheated, and that's where it has to be 51% corn, but then rye is used for some, wheat for others, mixtures uh, for those. And uh, I've always thought that sort of the, what was considered the higher end bourbons uh, were wheated. Uh, is, is that generally true? Uh, probably not generally true. There are a lot more bourbons that use rye as the secondary grain. And, and what I mean by that, and to elaborate on what you said, after 51% corn, uh, most distillers use a little bit of malted barley, usually around 5%. And then the next highest grain percentage is usually rye. Most bourbon contains rye. And I say a secondary grain because it's, it's the second highest amount of grain after corn. There are very few weeded bourbons. So weeded bourbons, instead of using rye as the secondary grain, use wheat. The most famous uh, of the weeded bourbons is Maker's Mark. And uh, they have always used wheat as their secondary grain. Um, Weller is a, is a Buffalo Trace brand that's also very popular. Uh, they have a couple of different varieties of Weller. Weller uses wheat as a secondary grain. And of course, Pappy does. Heaven Hills uh, weeded bourbon is called they have, a, they have a couple of different. One is Larceny and the other is Old Fitzgerald. So you can really name on a, on a hand and a half all of the weeded bourbons out there. And I would say other than Pappy Van Winkle, when you get into exclusive expensive bourbons, that's actually really the only one that is a weeded bourbon. Uh, the rest, there are some fantastic limited edition bourbons that come out of Four Roses those actually have a lot of rye in them. Still enough corn to be bourbon, but they're very high rye uh, for the secondary grain. 
And then even Buffalo Trace has a limited edition that they release uh, each each year that's called the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection. And all of those, except for the Weller uh, brand that they have in that lineup, all have rye as the secondary grain. So it's, it's by far the most common secondary grain. So uh, my, my, my last process question here, I promise. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I also have, uh, in fact, I'm sitting in my study now and I've got uh, a little bar where I've got the, you know, one of the oak barrels that you can buy and you can sort of uh, put your, put your bourbon in there and let it age a little more, you know, as it goes along. And uh, it it seems to me, I mean, what I put in it, I don't put the high end bourbons in it, but I put the, put the lower uh, so-called lower end bourbons in there, the more generic type bourbons and let them sit. It does seem to add some flavor to that uh, to me, but I was wondering what, what your opinion was uh, about that, about home, home aging of some of the lesser brands to, uh, to flavorize them a little more. I, I think it's a great idea to experiment. And, and like you, I'm not going to put anything expensive in there uh, because it's already uh, most of those I already like. So there's no need to, to try to mess with them. Um, but I think it's part of the process of enjoying bourbon. Uh, put it in one of those little mini barrels, see if you can get some more oakiness into it. Um, I read a, a, a book by Alan Goldfarb um, where it's called, uh, I think, Hacking Whiskey or Whiskey Hacking. And he had, he had a recipe in there for what they call fat washing uh, bourbon. And so you, the recipe is to, to grill bacon and infuse your bourbon with bacon fat. And everyone swore how great that was and said it's, it's great in a Bloody Mary and it's great all on its own. Mine turned out awful. I mean, it was the worst thing I've ever tried. I don't know if it's operator error or I just don't like it, but um, mine was awful and I'll never ever do it again. But you can also fat wash with peanut butter if you want to see what it would be like to have a, more of a peanut flavor uh, in, in your bourbon. And there's all these different ways to experiment with it. And if you get, like you said, the, uh, the Evan Williams 100 proof, uh, you can get a handle of that for pretty inexpensive. It's 100 proof and experiment with it a little bit. See what you 20, like. 20, 28 bucks. That's what I, I put in my barrels there you all go. the time is the, the Evan Williams white label, 100 proof. So it's sort of, uh, you know, the alcohol will still sort of shine through a little bit in, uh, in an old fashioned or whatever else. But uh, I, I, I I've enjoyed it, you know. Yeah, it's it's a great bourbon. At it one really of our is. at one of our bourbon tastings, which we have from time to time at Lawyers Club, which by the way, Brian, please come visit us in Atlanta and we'll take you for a bourbon. Oh, I will. Absolutely. Lawyer, Lawyers Club on the 38th floor of the promenade. It's it's beautiful. Um, but we had a bourbon tasting with that that bacon flavored bourbon and that that was not for me. Not for you either. Okay, good. Well, I'm no, glad it's I just like not that. me. And I, I'm hoping that it wasn't operator error. Yeah, I don't think uh, so. So it's, it's good to hear that you, you weren't a fan either. Let me, uh, I think it, we need to probably let Brian go, although I could talk to him probably for all day, Lester. <laughs> Absolutely. This We've covered a, lot of, covered a lot I of could, good cases, but we got more to cover, actually. I could talk to you through happy hour and then we could <laughs> end with a we'll, bourbon. We'll yeah. do that. We'll do that. But I wanted to end... Uh, to entice our listeners to go buy your book because it's so interesting. I just really enjoyed it. And I, I read out loud, we were traveling from Nashville uh, back to Atlanta the other day. I read about half of it out loud to my husband as he was driving. But I wanted, I wanted to end with this 
your last thought and share this with our listeners. In the end, though, that is part of bourbon's charm. Bourbon's legends, folklore, and marketing have come to dominate bourbon culture, which is certainly one reason why consumers have fallen back in love with bourbon. On the other hand, tall tales can create a disconnect because another part of bourbon's allure is that it is pure and genuine. These 10 chapters have focused on legal stories of historic bourbon distillers fighting for the craft and their very livelihood against rectifiers and charlatans and against each other to protect their own names and intellectual property rights, but also uniting for the greater good of consumer protection. Puffery, deception, and infringement seem irreconcilable with this legal history and the authenticity that is guaranteed in every bottle of straight bourbon whiskey. This contradiction, however, proves the point of bourbon justice. Just as the American experience is complex, and just as the flavors of bourbon are complex, bourbon history embraces that complexity. Bourbon and history are more than just complementary. Bourbon law tells the history of America and making it all the more fitting to be honored as America's native spirit. There's plenty more history that bourbon law can tell with stories that could resonate with consumers simultaneously thirsty for mavericks and authenticity while they sip their corn. If distillers and consumers realize that lawsuits hold the key and that those stories can be more fascinating than the myths, then bourbon justice will have proven its case. I love that ending. And I think you have Thank I think you. you have proven your case. And I'm going to be looking forward to bourbon justice volume two. Robin, well, I think you. that I think that may be the first time that I've heard a book really sold, you know, and, and of course, uh, I've got the book and have read it. But, you know, by reading the last paragraph, you know, usually you're trying to avoid spoilers. <laughs> but boy, that just entices you, you uh, entices you in all the more. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Well, Brian, we always like to ask our guests uh, uh, one final question. Um, and that is, what is your notion of justice or what is your definition of justice? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, and I, I love that you ask that. And part of what I went through on the on the interviews that I listened to were try to hear what other guests would have to say about that, because my experience is is limited. Um, I, I know that uh, because of my practice, which is was which is all civil litigation, I probably have a more narrow view and I can afford to approach it as the traditional rule of law definition um, without getting into the social constructs that have really interfered with justice uh, in the criminal justice arena. But I chose the word justice for the book title because bourbon helped guide the, the country from this wild west or this laissez-faire world where rectifiers could do what they want and put what they want on the labels and could put poison in bottles or other products outside of the bourbon industry. And bourbon, I think, provided justice because it provided consumer protection, because it provided workplace safety laws, because it, it helped grow us into a nation of laws. So, so justice in that sense is consistent with, with how I've approached it in, in the civil litigation world, the, the rule of law. Uh, treating everyone the same under the law. Um, and there are undoubtedly some bourbon stories that probably tend more toward the 
social justice side of the equation. And your question has actually inspired me to start looking into that side as well. Great. Looking forward to it. I look forward to our next conversation. And hopefully it'll be while we're clinking glasses of bourbon. 38th floor. I've, I've <laughs> got that in my head. I'll see it's, you there. It's, it's truly beautiful. We have a, have a great bartender and a great bar. And uh, we'll have you have you there next time you're in Atlanta. It's perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Let me share with our listeners again. Brian, thanks for being with us. We've been talking with Kentucky lawyer and author Brian Hara. You can get his book, Bourbon Justice, How Whiskey Law Shaped America on Amazon.com in Kindle, paperback or hardback, or on his website, brianhara.com. That's Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Hara, H-A-A-R-A.com. Also, you can follow him at his blog at sippincorn.com. That's sipping without a second I, S-I-P-P-N-C-O-R-N.com. Uh, or at bourbonjustice.com. That was an, that's an easy one to remember. Thank you again, Brian. Great. Thanks so much. I appreciate both of your time. All right, Lester, I, I, we have our spot where we talk some, about something in the law recently. Um, before I do mine, I wanted to say, if I get a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle, I'm sharing it with you, and I hope you will make that agreement with me. I will. You got it. We have, we have an ironclad covenant okay. uh, for, for for Pappy Van Winkle. It it, it uh, cannot be found around here, but if I ever get one, you and I are going to drink it together. Let's do it. Let's okay. do it. My uh, article about the law uh, this week is a United States Supreme Court case: Ford Motor Company versus Bandemer, B-A-N-D-E-M-E-R. Uh, the opinion came out March 25, 2021, so just a week ago. Uh, and it's interesting because of several reasons. Um, first of all, this podcast is about the civil justice system. It's sponsored by the Georgia Civil Justice System or Foundation. And this is one of those rare times when the United States Supreme Court took a personal injury civil case. So it's a civil personal in two two civil personal injury cases. That's very rare in United States Supreme Court jurisprudence. Um, But it dealt with personal jurisdiction of Ford Motor Company. Uh, One case was a tread separation on a Ford car, and the other case was a failure um, failure of the airbag to deploy. One was a wrongful death case. The, The tread separation ended in a death, and the uh, airbag case ended in severe, severe catastrophic personal injuries. Um, and so what is happening in all of these cases, any really any kind of product liability case, and in one that I have um, with Richard Griggs and Rance Parton uh, and, and uh, Davis Copper, they have alleged we're not we're we're not uh, subject to jurisdiction in the state of Georgia. In in this case, in Ford Motor v. Van Bandemer, B A N D E M E R. Same thing. Ford said we're not we're not subject to jurisdiction in the state of Minnesota or in the state of Montana where the two wrecks occurred. And they argued, Ford argued, that under our laws, including the Constitution, the Fourteenth Amendment, that the plaintiffs would have to sue them where that particular car was manufactured. One was manufactured in Canada and one was manufactured in Michigan that had nothing to do with where the wreck occurred. 
And so we fight these in products liability cases all the time. It is a, it, you know, it's coming and it takes about a year and a half because they appeal it all the way up. Uh, so it, it's a year and a half to two year um, stumbling block in any kind of products liability case. Um, but the finally, United States Supreme Court and Justice Kagan authored the opinion, and it was unanimous, said that no, um, a car is meant to travel from state to state or, or from Canada to the United States or from New York to the state of Washington. And so we're going to say that Ford has, has, we have jurisdiction over Ford wherever the incident occurred and that plaintiffs could have jurisdiction over, over them in Minnesota or could have jurisdiction over them in Montana for personal injury arising out of these product liability cases. Um, it was a, a unanimous except with some special concurrences, uh, the new justice, Justice Barrett, did not participate. But one of the concurrences was by Justice Gorsuch. And he didn't really like the way they got to the, to the, to the end result. He didn't really care for that. But he did agree with it. He agreed that about it. But I, I'll say, even though my, my uh, outlook on the law um, and the Constitution may not mirror Justice Gorsuch, Gorsuch's, um, it's fun to read his opinions because he's a pretty funny guy. Uh, and he talks about, um, you know, nobody likes, he's, nobody likes to be served anywhere because it means you got a lawsuit coming. Um, but he says, uh, nobody likes to see the process server. And that's true. Nobody likes to see the process server. But this, this opinion makes it very clear that you may sue Ford Motor Company or any, any company like that, that, that creates products that travel from state to state. You can sue them in the state where the incident occurred. And so that now is the law of the land and no more um, litigation, initial litigation when you have a products case. Uh, that's over. So we're all, all of us who do products liability stuff is very, we're all very happy to see this opinion and uh, we'll put it up on the website so people can read it. It's not even that long for United States Supreme Court case. Um, but but thrilled to see the outcome. Very interesting. Very interesting. And uh, personal jurisdiction, you know, that's one of the first things you take yep. up in civil procedure in law school uh, because you have to have jurisdiction for it. court can hear anything else. So it's a it's a fascinating, uh, yeah. uh, fascinating issue. Well, you, uh, wait, let me just tell you one thing. You, sure. you, you mentioned first year civil procedure law school. This this case goes all through uh, international shoe. And worldwide, no, you're against NAF and, and worldwide Volkswagen. So that's great. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, uh, mine today, before I get into it, I, I, I want to ask our listeners, uh, you know, we're, we, we're here, we're really talking about the law. And so I, I want to ask you to divorce yourself from politics uh, for just a minute, because I want to talk about a case that's really sort of, uh, it was in the news uh, yesterday or today. And it is uh, it, it involves politics, but the legal issue is fascinating. And Robin, as you were talking about the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, people often talk, well, we've got this five, four split. A lot of those decisions are nine to zero, just like the one that you just had. And they really have to do with the law and not with the, with the politics of the whole thing. So I have uh, uh, my article today is about a political case that I think is really kind of fascinating from a legal sort of standpoint, if you will uh, lay aside your views on the personalities and on the events that, trans that uh, uh, transpired back on January 6th of this year. Uh, in uh, uh, the, uh, on the journalism site Politico, 
there is an article that uh, was uh, is there today, and it talks about two Capitol Police officers sue former President Trump for sparking the January 6th mob attack. And it goes on to say that officers James Blassen Game and Sidney Hemby described severe personal and emotional toll from the riot that continues to haunt them. And in a 40-page lawsuit, they said that former President Trump bears direct responsibility for unleashing violent followers upon the Capitol. Both officers are seeking unspecified damages greater than $75,000 a piece. They filed that in federal court uh, in uh, in the District of Columbia. So that's the 75,000 is the minimum uh, jurisdictional limit. Uh, now, what's fascinating to me about this case, and I, a lot of our listeners who maybe are not uh, are not lawyers or don't work in the legal industry, you know, may not realize that uh, what we call premises liability, where somebody's killed on the scene of an apartment complex or at a store where there's inadequate security and stuff, you know, the law provides that there are certain acts and omissions that uh, others can take that aren't the wrongdoer that still results in liability on the part of, uh, uh, of the individual that owns the property or controls the property or whatnot. Uh, to me, this is a fascinating case because uh, what they're saying is that President Trump's words spurred this riot on, caused this, caused this riot to happen, and they cite in the lawsuit uh, a lot of uh, political allegations from people like uh, Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, who says, "Oh, this was President, this was President Trump's fault." Uh, uh, others are cited in there, and they actually cite his own words. This is the kind of case that that frankly uh, probably runs square into uh, a First Amendment consideration too, because you're talking about political speech. You're talking about somebody that's given a political speech in the general terms, uh, depending on what they've, they've said uh, individually. And we've often heard uh, the, the old saw that uh, you can yell theater at a crowded fire, but you can't yell fire at a crowded theater with your, with your free speech rights because yelling fire at a crowded theater results in somebody getting hurt. Uh, and it, it, it uh, you know, could cause a stampede, uh, could cause false alarm, that type thing. And so to me, this is a really fascinating uh, case, and I'm interested to see what happens with it. The lawyers who filed it are very reputable lawyers, and it seems to me that they have a lot of pretty good evidence that would show uh, the urging of a uh, the urging of what took place later on. And I've had cases like this. You know, one of the first cases I ever tried involved a young man whose parents were out of town. He invited 10 of his best friends over. He was in high school, invited 10 of his best friends over. A hundred people showed up, half from one high school, half from another. Somebody gets hit and he's, he's sued, just like President Trump was, for urging the battery, for saying, hit him, hit him hard, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's going to be real interesting to me to sort of see how this, uh, how this lawsuit plays out. And I think it's also interesting from the standpoint that, uh, you know, it really does emphasize in my mind what we talk about as lawyers and how lawyers, you know, lawyers and politicians get thrown in the same the, 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 the same heap, you know, sometime, but there's a huge difference between what the law is and what politics is. And so this particular case, I think, is uh, right at the intersection of those. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see what the legal rulings are that, you know, that that come out of this case.
Sounds it, it will be fun to watch. Um, I'm wondering if they'll take the depositions of, of Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi. And, you know, you could just take the deposition of every person, every Congress congressman or senator who was there. And, you know, as well as some of the folks who are I saw yesterday, this was this would have been another one that one of the Capitol rioters who was arrested uh, was arrested at his home in Texas. And uh, uh, when the when the FBI went to arrest him, he had a T-shirt that said, I was there January 6th. (laughs) Uh, He was wearing that T-shirt on that that particular day. So he's smart, too. Right. (laughs) So it'll it'll be interesting to to see what happens. And uh, it uh, it also. I think harkens back to a basic principle of civil law, which is that uh, civil law seeks to hold people accountable for what their actions are. But there are some actions that uh, you know are not cognizable under the law, and there are others that are. So it's worth watching uh, for our listeners. I think definitely. Uh, and I'll just say, talking of, about worth watching, I am watching pretty much every day of the George Floyd, the the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, the police officer who killed George Floyd, and uh, it's many things but one of them is heartbreaking um and uh, it's online you can watch it online or tv some people have told me i they can't watch it's just too sad but i've been watching and it's fascinating so i'd recommend that to our viewers and i think the i think the other thing that's important about that is that um there are 12 people really more i'm assuming there are alternates i haven't looked at the exact two alternates two alternates so 14 people who are 14 uh you you want to say ordinary people but they're really not ordinary people they're extraordinary people and they've been given extraordinary power you know to look into this and you know they're not you know they weren't elected president of the united states the u.s congress to the state legislature they're not judges they're not uh, you know, not, not legally trained uh, in in the truest sense of the word. Usually, most lawyers get struck off the jury uh, first thing. Uh, but that's really the essence of our system: is that you know, and it's democracy at its most root level that we're uh, entitled to a juror of our peers, and we're called to be uh, be jurors as peers of others who were accused of wrongdoing. It is the hallmark of our system. One of the reasons you and I both love our system, um, that any ordinary walking around person decides an issue of this magnitude for our nation. I think that's pretty incredible. So uh, I have nothing else, Lester. What you got? I don't either. Okay. I don't either. I just really enjoyed the show today. Uh, I did too. I thought, thought it was a great show. Me too. Yeah. And until next time, we we'll will see you in see court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, Until our next episode, we'll see you in court.